following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. The text for this morning comes from Luke chapter 24, verse 36 to 53. Luke 24, verse 36 to 53. And the title of the message is Encountering Jesus. And it reads, As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And said to them, Thus is it, it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your ministry of teaching toward us through the Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes to the truths of your word and help us to have fresh eyes to see this Jesus Christ who we proclaim here in this place. Give us the testifying ministry of the Holy Spirit to reveal him to each one of us, that we might know that he is alive and here with us even in this moment. For we pray all this in his name. Amen. July 22nd, 2012. This is the date that I first began the sermon series in Luke. Okay? (laughs) So we are finally here. The very last message. <laughs> I was thinking, like, after I preach today, I should do a mic drop and then just walk out of the room <laughs> and then just ride off into the sunset, you know? Um, just to give you some perspective on how long the series has gone, this is what some of the children in our church looked like in July 2012, okay? And I apologize if you don't know these kids, but trust me, they're much bigger now, okay? So you could go find them during the fellowship hour and says. So is that you, you know? Uh, this picture was actually taken the week after we began the Luke series when we had our summer picnic. Um, so 104 sermons later, uh, we're finally at the end of our Luke series. Um, and so we're wrapping up this series today. And so I want to do a little bit of recap and then get into the text for this morning. Easter Sunday begins very early with a group of women who went to the tomb 
early that morning, fully expecting to find the body of Jesus Christ. Okay? But instead, they find an empty tomb. And they're met by a couple of angels who rebuke them and say, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. And in their amazement, they run back to the 11 disciples and report what they happened. And these disciples refuse to believe, despite everything that Jesus had told them in their life while he was with them in, in the earlier years. Um, they are not looking for a resurrection. That's just simply not an operative category for them. Later that same day, Jesus would appear to a couple of other disciples who are walking on this road to this village called Emmaus. And they echo the disappointment and the grief of these other disciples. And they also are not looking for a resurrection. But as they walk, Jesus begins unpacking the Old Testament to them, showing them how all the books in the Bible were pointing to this event, to his death and his resurrection three days later. Finally, reaching the, the village of Emmaus, they beg him to stay longer and they break bread with him. And as Jesus breaks the bread, in that moment, their eyes are open and they realize that it was Jesus all along who was walking with them. And then it's interesting because right in that moment of recognition, it says that Jesus disappeared. He vanished right in front of their eyes. They had just walked seven miles to get to their hometown, most likely. But this news is so unbelievable that they literally just get up and they run back to Jerusalem in order to report back to the 11 disciples what had happened, what they just witnessed. Basically to say, everything that the women said is true. It's, we saw Jesus himself. And it's interesting because when we pick up the story from today, while the disciples from the Emmaus Road were still talking to the 11, uh, it's, we'll find out later it's actually the 10, uh, Jesus appears out of nowhere. And he's standing among them. And it's again interesting, the reaction of the disciples, because they're terrified. And they think that they're seeing a ghost. And they still can't wrap their mind around this fact that Jesus is alive again. And so Jesus gives them this mild rebuke when he says, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? And then he shows them his hands and his feet. And he actually invites them to come up and says, go ahead, don't hesitate, don't be shy. Touch me, you know. I know that's what you want to do. Touch me, put your fingers, you know, like do whatever you want and see that this is really me. This is, I'm not a ghost. This is actually me alive again. You can imagine what a scene that must have been in that room that day as these disciples swarm around Jesus, just rubbing their hands on their skin, maybe tugging his hair, you know, just poking him and prodding him. And basically, like, is this real? Is this really Jesus? Because we swear we saw him dead on a cross. And then Luke uses an interesting phrase to describe the disciples' state of mind at that moment. He says that they, quote, disbelieved because of joy. Okay? They disbelieved because of joy. That's a different kind of disbelief than the disbelief they had before. You get the sense that the truth is finally sinking in to the disciples, that Jesus is alive again. But it's the kind of disbelief that I believe it, but it's just too good to be true, you know? It's, it's just almost like you dare not believe it 
because you're afraid your heart will get broken, right? Like this is just good news that's too good to be true. And as I was thinking about that sentiment of the disciples that disbelieve because of joy, I thought of like, have I ever experienced something like that? And two incidents sort of came to my mind as the moments when I actually felt that way. The first that came to my mind was uh, when I was in high school and I actually asked Betty to date me, okay? Because we were like high school sweethearts. And the truth is, like, I thought she was way out of my league, you know? <laughs> like, she, she was just too pretty and too whatever. I go, she's never going to want to date me, you know? And, you know, we were at this, like, youth group hangout in one of our friends' basement, and we're all, like, you know, just hanging out there. And I don't know what we were doing down there, but I just, it was a moonshot. And I said, uh, do you want to go out with me, <laughs> you know? And she said, yes, you know? And it was like I didn't believe it, you know, because it was almost like I was expecting rejection. And when she said yes, it was just too good to be true. You know, I almost thought like she was pranking me or something like that. Like, I was just kidding. Why would I want to date you, you know, or something like that, you know. But it was like she said yes. I don't believe it. She said yes. And then we had our first dance that night to Every Breath You Take by the Police, you know. <laughs> so that became our song, okay? So every time that song comes on the radio, it's, uh, it's kind of interesting. Anyway, I don't know why I shared that detail, you know. Um, the, the other time I felt this idea of joy of disbelief, it, this disbelief of joy is when I got accepted to medical school. Um, you know, like, so many of my fellow pre-med students that we were at U of I together were getting rejection letters from one medical school after. No one was getting accepted among this group of pre-meds that we studied together and hang out together. And the truth is, I didn't get a single letter response yet. And I was told that that's not very good news, you know, if you haven't heard yet from any of the schools. And then I was also told, like, if you get a thick envelope, that's a good sign. That's usually an acceptance letter. But if you get a thin envelope, that's not a good sign. That's probably a rejection letter. So I remember when this thin envelope came from the University of Illinois College of Medicine. I was like, oh, gosh, I guess this is my first rejection letter. And I opened it, and it actually said I was accepted, you know. And the truth is, like, I didn't believe it, you know. I kept reading the letter again and again, thinking I misread it. And then... You know, I was like flipping out. I go, I got into medical school. And then I actually went to bed that night and I got up in the middle of the night and read the letter again because I thought I misread it. You know, and I said like, I'm sure it says somewhere in there you did not get accepted. And somehow I misread it. But it was that disbelief of joy. You know, it's just, I, don't, I know my eyes are not lying, but it just feels too good to be true. Like, I, I don't think... This is true. It's interesting that that's the feeling that the disciples felt that day was. It was just such unbelievably good news that they had a hard time just coming to an acceptance of it because it was like, this is my greatest dreams and hopes coming true, that it's almost like I dare not believe that this is actually happening. And in their excitement, Jesus realizes what's going on in their hearts, and he says, I know you guys are having a real hard time with this. And so he says, do you have any food here? And they 
pull up this broiled fish and go here, you know, and then he just says, watch this, and then he starts eating it, you know, and I think they're all looking on the floor expecting it to, like, pass through his body or something because he's a ghost, but they're all watching very carefully to make sure this food is actually going into his mouth and it's going to be digested. And Jesus says, do you see? I'm eating this food. I am not a ghost. I am really here in the flesh. And so he eats this food to demonstrate it to them. Now, this goes on, and then we get to verse 50 to 53, and it sounds as if, by by the way that Luke tells the story, that it's on the same Easter Sunday that Jesus ends up walking with them to this town of Bethany, which was about two miles east of Jerusalem, and then it's there that he ascends to heaven and disappears for good. But that's actually not the sequence of events. The book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, tells us a little bit more the details of the sequence of events. Because in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it says, After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. It's interesting that 40 days after for 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus just repeatedly kept appearing to the disciples and he kept doing these things to just keep proving to them it's me, I'm alive. This is really me. Okay? And then after those 40 days were over, finally Jesus ascends to heaven. And what's interesting is the disciples were told worshiped him. They worshipped him. This is the first and only time in the gospel of Luke that the disciples actually worshipped Jesus. Up to this point, they've been following him and obeying him, I think as a respected teacher. But now they are convinced that Jesus is not only alive, but he is also God. And so under this overwhelming evidence of the resurrection, they begin worshipping and saying, This is God himself who has walked among us. Years later, Peter would write of that experience in his second letter, 2 Peter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw it firsthand, his resurrected body. We put our fingers where the nails were. And we saw his glory of his resurrection. It's interesting that on that first Easter, when Jesus appeared to the disciples at first, all together, uh, Thomas wasn't actually with them, we find out. He was missing. Maybe they sent him off to get some fried chicken or something like that, and he was gone. And then when he comes back, he's like, we all saw Jesus, you know? And he's like, what? In John chapter 20, verse 24 to 25, it records it like this. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, which means twin, interestingly, uh, one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. In other words, Thomas says, I'm not going to believe just because you guys told me this. I have to see it for myself. And so what happens next is a week later, in verses 26 to 28, a week later his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. 
Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. It's interesting, you know, um, there's this very clear agenda that Jesus has after his resurrection to make absolutely certain that the disciples know that he resurrected. And because Thomas was not included in that first experience, Jesus wants to make sure that even Thomas gets to experience this for himself. So he says, go ahead, stick your hand into my side. Do everything you need to do to be absolutely certain that this is true that I rose from the dead. This is going to be absolutely critical to their mission, that they become witnesses of the resurrection. So he says, be sure that there's not even a lingering doubt of what you're witnessing here, that Jesus has rose from the dead. And then Jesus says something interesting in verse 29. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet, have believed. He's saying, you know, for you 11, you're getting this incontrovertible proof that no one else gets, you know, like I'm actually letting you, you know, just <laughs> touch me everywhere and make absolutely certain that this is me alive in the flesh. But you know, not everyone is going to get to do this, and yet they will believe. And that raises an interesting question here. Because there is no doubt about it that these encounters changed the disciples' lives permanently and completely. After those 40 days, they were never the same again. They were cowards, grieving and hiding in lo behind locked doors. But after Jesus' ascension, they feared nothing. They were courageous men that said, we're going to testify of what we saw as witnesses of this resurrection, even if they kill us. doesn't matter. We don't even fear death anymore. We are afraid of nothing. And Jesus says, you know, you are witnesses of that because you actually saw it. And you in your minds have no doubt of what you experienced. But then the question arises, that's great for the 11. What about for the rest of us? How can we be witnesses to a resurrection that we ourselves did not see? We didn't get to stick our hand into Jesus' side. We don't, with our own eyes, get to see him in the flesh. So how can Jesus expect us to be witnesses like those 11 original disciples? And I think the answer is found right here in the text. I think God accomplishes this in two primary ways. The first is through his written word, the Bible. That's why Jesus went so thoroughly through Scripture with them and said, make sure you see the evidence in Scripture. And he took all of the different books of the Bible and he pointed to how they all showed that it was about him, his death and resurrection. Verse 45 to 48, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning... Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. 
And so the main way that God continues to bear witness to the Son is through His written word, the Bible. In fact, this is the way that I came to faith. When I read through the Bible, I started it as an eighth grader and I finished it when I got to be a freshman in high school. And as I was reading through the pages of that Bible, I experienced that burning heart that the Emmaus Rhodes disciples felt. I felt like something was just burning up inside of me saying, this is true, this is true. So that by the time I finished the Bible as a freshman in high school, I, I just bowed on my knee and completely gave my life to Christ and said, you take anything you want, God. Everything that I have is yours. This is the witness of Scripture that testifies to Jesus Christ. The second way that we can become witnesses to the resurrected Jesus, even if we haven't seen him with our own eyes, is through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 24, verse 49, it says, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Luke explains what he meant by this promise of the Father in Acts 1, 4-5. It says, On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Earlier in Jesus' life, he told them about the coming of the Holy Spirit in this way. In John chapter 15, verse 26, When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. What Jesus is saying is, after I leave, the Holy Spirit will come, and he will bear an inner testimony in your own hearts of me, so that you will know that I am alive, that I am real. And then a little later, as he talks about his impending departure, he sees the sadness of his disciples as he's talking about him leaving them soon. And he says this in John 16, verse 6 to 7. Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus is saying something remarkable. He's saying it's actually better that I leave because when I leave, there will be this ministry of the Holy Spirit that's going to come to you and testify to you and minister to you in a way that even I didn't do when I walked this earth. He will come into your heart and dwell there and give you my witness in your heart, in a way that will bring joy and awe. So that even if you have not touched my nail-pierced hands, through the work of that Holy Spirit, you will experience the same joy and the same awe, the same worship that the first disciples experienced. That's how you will be my witnesses. Let me say it like this. You can know about the ocean by studying maps and charts and look at current patterns and temperature gradients and where all the basins and trenches are. And you can become an expert oceanographer by studying the data, right? That's knowledge, and it's real knowledge. It's important knowledge. 
But there's also an experiential knowledge that can only come by actually swimming in the ocean. I love this picture. (laughs) This is an awesome picture of what it's like to experience the ocean. Hearing the roar of those waters and feeling the power of the waves buffeting your body and smelling and tasting the salt on your lips and feeling the sand underneath your feet. This is an experiential kind of knowledge that all the maps and charts in the world cannot teach you. And this is the kind of experiential knowledge of Jesus that the Holy Spirit offers to us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. As I mentioned this before, he's talking to the next generation of disciples who never got to see Jesus in the flesh. They only hear stories of the old people talking about what Jesus was like. And he says, and yet, and yet, there is something so real about your relationship with him because of the way the Holy Spirit testifies of Jesus that he is in your heart and you know his nearness. You experience his love through that work of the Holy Spirit. And as we wrap up this series in Luke, I just want to end this series by challenging you with that. Do you know Jesus in this kind of personal, intimate way? Because I worry that for many of us, our faith looks more like the faith of maps and charts and diagrams and data. And the truth is, Jesus is like a dead historical figure that we admire and respect and we learn in church every week. But what I want to ask you is this. Is he real to you? Listen, I'm not just talking about feeling some warm fuzzies when you're seeing certain gospel songs, you know, and saying, I, I just, I, I'm not a feeler, I'm a thinker, and I, I, I get that, that some of people are just always feeling the spirit, and I, it could be that, But I'm just asking you, not trying to generate a feeling and saying that was the Spirit. I'm just asking you, do you walk in expectation that your God that you worship is alive so that when you're sad, you turn to him? When you're in need and desperate, you pray to him and cry out to him and actually believe that he is alive here, that we worship a living God who is here to meet your needs and minister to you and cares about you and loves you. That's the God that you proclaim here at ICC and that every church of Jesus Christ proclaims is that our God is not dead. He is alive. That is the joy of the original disciples. It's, it was a joy that was too good to be true, but they touched him. And they said, we saw it. We swear to God we are not lying. We touched him. And even we didn't believe the resurrection at first, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And when we realized that he actually was who he said he was, we fell on our knees and we worshipped him. And the truth is almost every single one of them were put to death violently for that testimony. And yet they feared nothing because they saw the risen Lord. That's why we called the series Encountering Jesus because that's the point of Luke's entire gospel. It's as if he wrote everything that he wrote to get to this 
final statement that said, this Jesus is alive and he lives among us and he is Lord and he died for your sins and if you give your life to him, you can know forgiveness of your sins. I think one of the reasons why the disciples were filled with so much joy after Jesus' resurrection was because they realized death is not the end of the story. I think the truth is this. In every age, just about everybody hopes for an afterlife. Don't they? Don't you? I mean, even if you struggle to believe all of this, don't you at least hope it's true? That, that this life isn't the end of it? And when they saw the resurrection of Jesus, they suddenly realized death isn't the end. It's not the end. There actually is an afterlife. And so in Jesus, they found hope of their own resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 to 23 says this. But Christ was indeed, has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Firstfruits is an agricultural term. And I learned this when I lived in Africa for five years among farmers. What it is is whenever you grow a crop, there's always some part of that crop that ripens first and you harvest it. And the reason why you harvest that first fruits is because it's a gamble every year. You never know what the crop is going to be like that year. It all depends on the rainfall and how much weeds got in there and parasites and all this so that you never know what kind of crop you're going to get at harvest time, but the first fruits gives you a pretty good indication. And if those first fruits are good, you know the harvest is going to be good. And that's what Paul is saying to the Corinthian believers is that Jesus is the first fruits of your resurrection. God said he would raise him from the dead, and he did. And because you have seen the risen Jesus, it's a security on his promise to you that you too will one day rise from the dead and be with him if you have put your trust in him. What I'm saying is this world is filled with brokenness and loss, unfulfilled hopes and wishes, unmet dreams. You know, the truth is, for many of us, we're like too young to really understand the truth of this. It's not going to be until maybe another decade or two when you're burying all your friends and loved ones and the hope of heaven suddenly becomes something you yearn for and really crave. But I know that some of you, even in this room, have experienced that loss and know that pain. And this is where the rubber really meets the road, where we struggle and say, I want to believe that more than anything, that I'll be reunited with loved ones, and that when I die, there's something more. And it's that idea of disbelief because of joy, you know? It's just too good to be true. It's like a fairy tale. And yet what the disciples discovered that day was this too-good-to-be-true tale is actually true. And out of that came this overwhelming worship and joy 
how to their hearts to believe because of the resurrection. Let me just close with these words, and we're going to go into communion. When Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 to 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray.